you end up talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the universe. And extract that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist. Think of objects not as single things, but as being made up of many constituents. Bill Nye made me hate science. Well, you're out at the pub and someone says, "Hey, what? Uh, so, what do you do?" And I'm like, "Hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist." You know what, guys? It's kind of sad. We're only we've only got like three more of listening to that intro. We can listen to it in our own time. Yeah, yeah. Speak for yourself. I'm just gonna sit in a basement somewhere. It's my new ringtone. <laughs> you know what? I would actually have it as my ringtone, but that would be so weird. Like everyone's like, "Why is Natural Reaction playing?" I'm like, "Cause I miss it." <laughs> so, um, as I am definitely telling you every week from now on, we've only got three weeks left until we are off the airwaves for a bit. I'm sorry, guys. If you want us back after, you need to say something. Yeah, please let us know. <laughs> we've gone away before. We've come back. We're like, we're like um, the glandular fever of radio shows. Just stay in your system for a little while, and every couple of years we'll flare up. That is the nerdiest <laughs> thing I think you said, and that's saying something. <laughs> so that's Izzy. That's the uh, the soulful sounds of Izzy right there, talking about glandular fever. Um, and we've got Nadia in the studio. Hello. Um, and we have a special guest. We have Dr. James Reed, a research fellow at the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology. Thank you for coming. Hey. <laughs> so he's going to be talking to us about physics stuff and simulations and computers and fun things. Fun, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but not quantum physics. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Definitely not quantum. We've done too many of those anyway. Yeah. We know it's... everything about quantum now. Oh, Good yeah. physics ended in 1900. <laughs> 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 so oh, shots fired <laughs> on natural reaction. <laughs> so this is what this show is going to be like. Um, this in is the like, meantime, this is like the scientific equivalent of splitting the party. Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> definitely. Um, so today I'm going to be talking about um, a quick little story about AI and hairdressers. Mm. I'm going to be talking about the Redo project and repurposing Viagra once again. Yeah, and um, those those are the catchy titles. Izzy, what are you talking I'm about? I'm talking about. Well, I think seeing big apex predators back where we haven't seen them before, or we haven't seen them before, which will become more important later on, is a big deal. I yeah, think it's interesting. It is cool. <laughs> Definitely not like quite as catchy though. The, the title's not as good, but there are <laughs> crocodiles and sea otters and wolves. Oh my! Wait, oh, oh that one's good. Like sea that. otters, apex predators of a certain food web. <laughs> <laughs> it's like of a very particular food chain. No. Like they're they're at the top of a thing. Don't you know that they are the top of the food chain? They've, hey, have, you, have, you, have you not seen a bunch of sea otters beat a crocodile? That actually does happen. Can we watch the video? I mean, yeah, I'll find it. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to it. We'll Sorry, get to, guys. To <laughs> you to have it. to YouTube it in your own time. No, you guys can listen to it uh, and listen to the uh, snapping noises of the crocodile being sad. Your natural reaction here on Zed Digital and Nadia. Yes. Tell me about Viagra. What do you want to know about Viagra? <laughs> Anything you want to tell me. <laughs> Well, Viagra, which is the drug of repurposing, is now being looked at for its potential to be an anti-cancer therapeutic. So that, okay, uh, let me just get the stupid questions out of the way. Surely we would already know because people who take a lot of Viagra would have less cancer. Not necessarily. Yeah, because the people who take can Viagra are more likely to be older. So you're probably looking to see like a certain incidence of cancer in them anyway, in general. You know what I mean? Like taking yeah, but there's some. I'm sure there's some old people who don't take Viagra, so you could just look yeah. at a, like sample size of people who are old who no, do take Viagra. Yeah, and who you don't take Viagra. You have to, but you have to do a study. You can't just like sort of look at existing things because there might be a whole lot of. Factors. There is evidence. All right, all right, and right, I will right, talk right. through that. So the Redo pro Project, which is repurposing drugs in oncology, 
is basically an anti-cancer fund that's trying to find drugs that are already commercially available and on the market to be repurposed for their potential like anti-cancer properties. And Just cancer? Well, mainly cancer. I mean, this is provided oncology. by an anti-cancer fund yeah. and repurposing drugs in oncology. And as we've mentioned in the show before, anti-cancer research is like one of the few areas getting funding. Lots of money. <laughs> they got to spread the money. wealth. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the importance of this is basically when it comes to clinical trials, designing a drug from start to finish, from the discovery to actually getting it into clinical trials and on the market is a 10 to 17 year process. Like, that's insane. And by the time those 17 years are over, chances are there may be something more effective, on like, available and in testing. Now, trying to repurpose drugs that are have already been shown to be safe with a limited amount of side effects and that enough people are taking is a 3- to 12-year process. So it's it can be a much faster way of getting drugs out there to those who need help. Yeah, it's massively expedited because we know I'm, I'm much more... I, much more about what their drug actually does to a human being. They've been well characterized. Yeah. And the thing is, with um, for the product pipeline in oncology ju- drugs, less than 10% actually go through. So out of all the anti-cancer drugs that are being investigated, less than 10% actually get to market and to clinical trials. So that's pretty insane. When all the funding and all the research is going into these drugs, the ones that do go past are insanely expensive just because of the nature of the pharmaceutical industry and their use and all that. So it's it's pretty hectic. And I think repurposing drugs is a very important thing that we need to look at. Because um, Viagra was originally made as a um, heart. heart drug, right? So it's been repurposed. Yeah, it's actually been repurposed twice. So um, Viagra, which is sildenafil um, citrate, is its original name, it was developed by Pfizer in the late 1980s for angina. Okay. So that's um, like the heart muscle spasms issues. in the heart that could be like related to coronary disease. And it entered its first clinical trials in 1991. And one of the side effects reported in these early studies was um, penile erections. As and opposed to those other kinds of erections. There are lots of erections in the body. I suppose that's just, true. It's that's, not just that's penile. True. It's not just males that have erections. I suppose that's true. The yeah. Nipple, of, nipple erections. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> lots, of, lots of lots of erections. Around. Oh yeah, just going through. That's good. That's good to know. And there's other ones too that aren't sexual, but I can't think of what they are right now. <laughs> Not oh, all like the, the, the. I think you get an erection in your nose, and that's why you get like a blocked nose, like one side will block and the other side will. Ah, mm. like a stuffy nose is like you have too much. Yeah, the blood the nasal tissues engorged. Mm. Ah. Yeah, that but anyway, sense. so that was one of the most notable side effects, and at the time there were no oral drug treatments for erectile dysfunction. And basically, they the interest in using Viagra as a heart medication weaned, and they started um, marketing it as you know an erectile dysfunction pill, and it became very very popular. And basically, early tr- clinical trials were successful, and they were approved by um, the FDA in 1998. And then after that, after um, it started gaining traction, it actually was repurposed again for the treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension. And now it's being investigated as a possible treatment for a number of other conditions, and that is most notably cancer. And um, so, so... how does it work with cancer? So Viagra is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. So what it does is it blocks a whole bunch of different signaling molecules. And what they found is um, there's a lot of in vitro as well as in vivo um, evidence to show that it's potentially effective by 
effective for as an anti-cancer therapeutic. And the first report of anti-cancer activity of this phosphodiesterase inhibitor was published in 2004. And basically, they reported five cases in which patients suffering from Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, which is basically, so you have your white blood cells and you have your B cells. And your B cells are responsible for producing antibodies and you have cancer of those cells. So they uncontrollably reproduce these antibodies. And basically, they found that four of the five cases um, showed a reduction in the serum levels of their antibodies being produced, showing that it was reducing that form of cancer. And based on those clinical findings, there was a phase two clinical trial opening uh, for Viagra. And after that, there's just been a lot of different trials, different um, evidence on cell lines showing that reduces the incidence. Um, Small clinical trials, but there's been quite a lot if you go and look at the Redo website and this study in particular, they have looked at um, the effect of not only Viagra, but it's like competition, Cialis, and other phosphodiesterase inhibitors on the market for erectile dysfunction in a number of different cancers, including chronic lymphocyte leukemia, prostate, colorectal, brain, breast, melanoma, multiple bioloba. So they've looked at it from a cell-based level as well as in humans. And those are lots of different types of cancers too. Yes. Like that's not just leukemias or something like that. That's actually a broad range. A very broad range. And they've been shown, there's a lot of promising data regarding this. And it's also been shown to improve the efficacy of what we call checkpoint inhibitors. Now, checkpoint inhibitors are really um, becoming prominent anti-cancer therapeutics. And what they do is they inhibit either the tumor cell or the white blood cell from recognize or they promote the recognition. So tumor cells often have these receptors on them and they are called PDL1s. And basically what they do is they go around and if a white blood cell comes and says, hey, are you a normal cell? It will kind of pass that checkpoint where it pretends to be a healthy cell because it's overexpressing these self receptors. So um, these phosphodiesterase inhibitors, the Viagra and Cialis, is actually shown to enhance these anti-cancer therapeutics. Um, So in combination with Viagra and these checkpoint inhibitors, it's enhancing the effect of checkpoint inhibitors, which are extremely expensive. Hmm. So So like you're making them, getting more bang for your buck out of the checkpoint inhibitors, which are the really expensive active component of the treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So the people who published this paper um, in eCancer Medical Science have basically summarized all the properties in terms of the clinical trials that have involved any form of phosphodiesterase inhibitor, so Viagra, and they've basically summarized all the evidence and have suggested that this be investigated much more closely for anti-cancer therapeutics. And it makes sense. It's widely available. It's cheap. There are generic forms of it. And if it can help, why not? Especially when people can't afford to pay over $200,000 per injection of an anti-cancer therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty insane. What sort of um, dosage for the Viagra are they looking at? Um, well, they've looked at different types of dosages. Yeah. The original study was, I think it was like 25 milligrams. Is that similar to like what you take for like erectile dysfunction? I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything about... Yeah, I'm not, so... I'm not that old yet. Protesting a bit hard. Yeah. <laughs> so normal dosage for erectile dysfunction is 25 to 100 milligrams for okay, so Viagra. Like, so it looks like it's in that... 
that same sort of range. Yeah, so that's like a single dose. And for pulmonary arterial hypertension, it's 5 to 20 milligrams three times a day. Um, so it's within that range, and they found that increases, so it, it was able to dose-dependently inhibit. That's the thing. A lot of the studies with all these drugs that they're trying to repurpose, they have found that, well, it has an effect, but it's not a causal effect because it's not able to dose-dependently inhibit these things. So they found that um, in a lot of the trials, there's been a reduction in tumor size and um, reduce like circulating um, immunosuppressive uh, like immunological markers Hmm. and it's shown to work through like helping the immune system cope with the cancer yeah so it's not not so much that the viagra is having an effect on the cancer cells it's doing something that helps the body itself fight the disease yeah Hmm. so that's viagra the the king of being repurposed at the moment apparently so yeah (laughs) drug that everyone can use (laughs) the drug that's going to save the world (laughs) That's a bit much, I think. You're a natural reaction here on Z Digital. And we have a guest in the studio today. We've got Dr. James Reed, research fellow at AIBN. I'm not going to do the whole acronym again because <laughs> it is a very long acronym. So to start with, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I basically do two things. So um, to pay the bills or get funding <laughs> from agencies, I do a lot of computer simulations for experimental groups and some theory stuff, basically modeling small systems, so polymers, battery electrolytes, so on, and really modeling the individual actions. So looking at how polymers shrink and grow in different solutions at different temperatures, how metals flow through solids for battery materials. And so that's pretty popular. You can get people to do that. Yeah, the stuff that everyone um, wants to pay you for, right? Wants to pay you for. <laughs> well, they don't pay you for it, but they will be funded. And then my passion, the thing that I love is uh, non-equilibrium statistical mechanics, which is basically how physics gets weird when things get small, but no quantum stuff. <laughs> no quantum. <laughs> wow, that's okay. So <laughs> it's um, the, the, the key is in the name, statistical. So it's all statistics. Um, even things we think of as being really small systems are really, really big, right? In a tablespoon of water, you have this thing called Avogadro's number, of atoms, and that's a six with 23 zeros after it. It's a big, big number. There are a billion people on the earth, or, you know, six billion people, that's nine zeros. So if instead of every person you had a planet, you'd be sort of getting up in that sort of scale. It's a really big number. And so things average out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Once you get really, really small, that averaging starts to disappear, and weird stuff starts to happen. So... Um, for example, in biology, you get protein motors like Kinesin, and they walk along things. And if you have a car, your car takes in fuel, it burns the fuel, and the engine turns over and you go forward. That doesn't happen (laughs) on the atomic scale. It takes two steps forward, and then it pulls some exhaust out, makes some fuel, and starts walking backwards for a bit, and then it starts moving forward again. It's weird. Yeah, we like to sort of describe... All of these systems, like when we when you do it in like a biology class, you go, oh, you know, this reaction happens and it steps the foot. Because like, right, kind of can if you look at if you this particular proto we're talking about, it, it has adorable little feet sort of thing and it walks along and it's dragging like a, a vesicle of some description depending on what's going on at the time. The video is very cute. The viewer, you look it yeah, up. Yeah, the videos are very cute. But like, it's all well and good how you describe that in a university lecture, and it's like, oh yeah, it carries the vesicle, the other thing. But it, yeah, it's a a biological system. It 
doesn't really care about what it, it it's not actually trying to do anything per se it's mm. just doing what it does it's just a series of reactions that are facilitating it at a very small level where it's just like this molecule activates this which causes us to do that at a very basic level but at the same time it's also complex yeah but your body yeah. i don't want to think about that though because then you're like oh your whole body's just doing reactions it's just an incredibly you're, complicated game of mousetrap you're literally <laughs> you have no control of what you do everything's just a reaction we can talk about that some other time if you want that's actually an interesting yeah. discussion i don't know if we've got enough uh, shows left <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have a secret one we'll just record it in our basement but you so you were saying like, like you like to, you love to model those sorts of systems. Yeah, so that's how I got started in my PhD was was doing you do the theory and you do the modeling. So you sit down with a piece of paper, you write down some equations, you solve them, kind of like high school maths. Mm-hmm. I'm the person who uses that math that you learn in high school <laughs> that you think, oh, nobody ever uses that. I use that. Okay, so if a train is heading north at 60 kilometers an hour and, <laughs> yeah. and directly parallel to it. Exactly. So, so you, you do that and then you, put, you do something in the computer. And the thing about computer modeling is it, it's horses for courses. You've got to choose the right type of modeling for the right system. And so you can go all the way down and do funky quantum stuff to model individual atoms and their strange behaviors. Or you can go up and do a thing called continuum modeling where you don't even model the individual elements anymore. You just treat sort of densities and flows and so on for modeling, you know, airflow over airplane wings. So you've got to choose your scale. And so I work in kind of this... The in-between zone. Nano scale, because nano is cool. Um, and <laughs> Buzzwords. We're going to call it the twilight yeah. zone. Yeah. And so what I tend to do is I model most of the bits of the system, right? So <laughs> either the atoms or maybe you substitute chunks okay so like much like a psychiatrist a social worker like looks at individual case level and a social uh, a social scientist might look at like populations you're like taking statistical samples and going this is representative of this much of yeah uh, okay so you're trying to take a good sample and predict the most of the system from that yeah and that and that's actually where the interesting stuff happens because people People who come from the experimental side get really stressed out when they do these small systems because you get wild temperature fluctuations. And they go, in the lab, I don't get wild temperature fluctuations. This thing just sits at room temperature. And you're like, yes, but you've got six with 23 zero after it atoms. Everything averages. If you're looking at a thousand atoms, that thing can fluctuate a lot. If you do a constant pressure simulation at one atmosphere, you can get everything from 100 atmospheres to minus 100 atmospheres of pressure on the system. And that's just what it does at that scale. Yep. So, yeah. So you enjoy the statistical aspect of it rather than the modeling aspect. Yeah. So I fell in love with statistical mechanics when I was an undergrad because... We keep talking about whys in physics, but eventually you get to a level where the answer is always just kind of because. <laughs> and StatMech is really good because the level where that happens is really, really low down. Ultimately, thermodynamics is about how heat flows, and ultimately it's about the arrow of time, right? Things move in one direction, as far as we can tell, for our perception. And... The guiding principle of statistical mechanics is just that things do what they're most likely to do, which doesn't really seem that hard, right? (laughs) If you have two possible outcomes, generally things do the more likely one. And when you've got these really big numbers, that more likely one is way more likely. It's not like twice as likely. It's billions of times more likely. But conversely, if you're in a universe that's been around for however many years... (laughs) 4.5 billion? Lots. We'll say lots. 
sometimes those really small probabilities come up. <laughs> and and that's exactly what we were looking at in these small systems. So in my PhD, we had, and you've heard about this a few times because I've listened to some of your shows, these optical trapping systems yeah. where you trap a particle. What we care about is the Brownian motion. And actually, people don't talk about what Brownian motion is from a thermodynamics point of view. There's this idea in thermodynamics called the second law that entropy always increases in the universe. Mm -hmm. And another way of stating that is you can't turn heat into work. You can turn a temperature difference into work. That's how an engine works. But you can't just cool something down and extract energy out of it. If you could, you could plug your fridge in and your fridge would supply power to your house by taking heat out of things. It doesn't work that way. Brownian motion does work that way. You have a large particle and suddenly the water around it cools down and it starts moving. Hmm. Ah, That's so, anti-entropic. So how do you get around this second law then? Um, on average, mm -hmm. the thing stops moving, the heat gets transferred back to the, the, the water. So on average, there's no violation. Ah. But for sure, if entropy is a system property. So in the system overall, the entropy actually never changes. But if you just look at it on a short time basis, you get these violations. And about 20 years ago, a couple of really great Australian scientists worked out that you could actually quantify the how often these violations happen and observe them. And so you could set up, you could sort of bias the system. So in the optical trapping system, it's like you've got a ball on a spring and it's bouncing around and then you tighten the spring up. When you tighten the spring up, you expect it to get pulled towards the spring. But sometimes it moves away. And so what we were doing was predicting how often that would happen. Um, and another one is you're dragging it along, and so it should be behind your dragging trap. But sometimes it actually runs in front of it okay. for periods of time. <laughs> That's so weird. It, I was always under the assumption that Brownian movement always just... Um, it was just the random movement of particles. Well, yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. But because one object is much bigger than the surroundings, it's the random motion of the water that causes the thing. And in fact, that loops around to modeling because one of the tricks you can play in modeling these systems is you just pretend that the water, instead of being all these atoms, is a random force that just works on things. So you just have a random number generator. It makes things <laughs> way easier. So instead of modeling a billion water particles, you just have your big ball and you pretend the water's this random force. This is like a spherical chickens in a vacuum kind oh, of thing. Oh, absolutely. And and you can tell simulation's great and that we've reached a golden age where there are all these computer programs that will do all the hard work for you. So people who've never done any simulation before can do them. And so you go along to talks where people are modeling a protein and they've abstracted the water away and then they wanted things to go faster so they heated it up a bit. And eventually you're looking at their plot and it's like, why is your water at 140 degrees? <laughs> because it doesn't boil, right? It's not really there. It's yeah. just a field. And they're like, oh, yeah, that I'm sure that's fine. <laughs> yeah, so something like that, you can't, say, exclude water completely. It always has to be taken into consideration within these small systems. Yeah. Because wouldn't that affect, say, the overall protein's function in yeah, the end? Yeah, and, and that, that's the thing. So particularly in the biological, the water is super important. Even I tend to be a bit small on that, so medium-sized polymers. But we were working with a group, an experimental group, and they'd made these polymers that did something really unusual. They expanded when you heat them. Hmm. Um, and polymers are weird in that they shrink when you heat them hmm. because they're entropically driven. And they'd made them things. But they were a bit worried because they can't, in the experiment, look at the individual atoms in the water. So they come along to us and it's like, could you model these and see if this is actually happening or if we've got a problem with our equipment? And there, the water was really important in the structure of how these things worked, as well as the polymers themselves. That's so cool. 
Actually, I, that idea that polymers shrink because they're entropically. Uh, sorry, can you can you go into that a little bit more? I'm curious about the polymer structure there. The classic problem everyone deals with: you have a, a set of headphones, and you stick them in your pocket, and they get all yeah. knotted up and munted. The the way to think about it is if you just pick up your headphones and you toss them in the air, they're more likely to land coiled up than they are dead straight. Mm -hmm. There is literally only one configuration of your headphones that is a perfectly straight line. There are billions and billions of them where they're all tied up in a horrible knot that you can't undo. And so that's exactly the thing. And when you heat something, it's equivalent to just tossing this up in the air more and more often. Because you're, you're inputting energy, you're increasing you're motion. Energy. And so usually what happens in a normal substance is everything's vibrating and the vibrations push everything apart a little and it swells up. But in polymers, it gets it gives them more energy to explore things and actually they can push closer to each other. So they get more tangled. Because they're mostly like a whole bunch of branch chains so yeah. that those branches can sort of... Yeah, or even a, line a purely linear one will do this. And we sometimes refer to it as an entropic force. There's no actual force there. Again, things do what they're most likely to do. And as you heat it up, they're more likely to be coiled up than they are to be straight. The straight configuration is actually the lowest energy one because none of the be none of the, the headphones are interacting with themselves at all, mm -hmm. right? But as you put more energy in the system, it's easier for it to crumple up. I like, cause like, yeah, so if you want to try and think of energy uh, entropy at home as... The number of configurations you can put something in. I, uh, the the other example people use a lot is Lego. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, where yeah. if you've built a Lego castle, there's only one configuration that is a Lego castle. So, the but the more you pull pieces apart and throw them in the air and put them in a random order, the more configure possible configurations that sort of mess has, and then thus the entropy increases mm. of that system. So, what would you say the best bit about your job is? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> the, the absolute best moments are when you find out something totally new, right? Like you sit down and you solve a fundamental problem. It doesn't have to be earth-shattering, I cured cancer. It's like um, during my PhD, I showed how one theory connected to another theory and it was just working through this problem. And you have this moment where it's like, I'm the first person in the world who's ever known this. Maybe nobody else cares, but <laughs> I I know this. And then you tell other people and you write it up. So I, I found that a really great feeling. That was the drug that got me hooked on science. <laughs> That's what we were talking about off-break, actually. That the... they're, they're just methods. <laughs> <laughs> they're just looking for a fix. And they don't care that it followed by three years of depression. <laughs> and to clarify what we mean by, like, quote-unquote methods, it's more spending... Months and months <laughs> trudging through, having horrible um, breakdowns, not good data. And uh, then so they're called depressive episodes. Depressive <laughs> episodes. <laughs> Cyclic depression. And then after months of slaving away, you get this one result that just makes everything worth it. I know, but say no, it doesn't actually make it worth it. It just feels like it does for the, the brief... <laughs> The fleeting high that, so, that you yeah. As you guys can probably tell, it's um, getting to the time of year where everyone's feeling <laughs> a little bit stressed. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> and um, I'm over here in my little bubble of non-science, like, feeling sorry for you guys. Thanks. Yeah. Love you all. It's all um, good. So what type of computers do you actually use? Are you using supercomputers? Are oh, they, like, lots of supercomputers. Big Ooh. and amazing. Multiple supercomputers. Oh. It's a golden age of it, supercomputers. It's a golden age. So, yes. Um, as I said, the uh, 
when I started out, I was writing my own code, building my own programs, very boutique, sort of handmade stuff. Bes- bespoke simulations. <laughs> I've actually used that term before, yeah. Bespoke. <laughs> no, um, no. Um, that's, that's not what's happening. As I said, people have made these packages. They're great. They're big. They're powerful. Most importantly, they're parallel, which means they can run on multiple processes at the same time for the same job. So instead of having to simulate 10,000 atoms on one processor, which takes... A year, you can do it on 100 processors and take two weeks to do it. Ah. And so we have a lot of really great supercomputing resources. Uh, there's the general uh, UQ computer, Tinaru, which is based at Springfield Lakes Data Center. Then there's one in ANU, which is Ragin, which is the national supercomputer. And then there's a giant sort of mining astronomy cluster where they let other people use spare time on in West Australia called Pawsey. Oh, that's really cool. I had no idea. What what are they doing it for mining? Do I want to know? Um, well, ge- geological processing and stuff. So you can do models of fracture. You can do um, models of, of how the ground works. A whole bunch of stuff I don't understand because I'm not a geologist. Makes but sense. yeah, there, there's lots of um, seismic type modeling as well you can do. So I assume they're using it because there's a lot of money over there and it's a really <laughs> big computer. It's it's Of the three computers at the moment, it's the best because they're just about to upgrade the one in Canberra. Oh, okay. That's all. That's awesome. So this sort of stuff. But you said that it takes two weeks to do these kind of simulations. Well, it, it, it depends on what you're doing. So um, simulations I run run anywhere from the shorter simulations I run are a couple of hours through to um, the longest simulations I've ever run took about three months. So Whoa. this three month simulation, like, please tell me that you take you you've done all this work, you put the simulation on, and then you go have a three month holiday. <laughs> I'd love that. No, you, you go work on another project. But yeah, for that, you literally have to wait. It drives students mad, particularly when they're staying, because, you know, you get a, a summer student in, and they're really only able to work on one thing. And then you they, they get to the simulation stage, and you've picked a project that's reasonable, but it's still going to take four days. And they're like, what do I do for four days? It's like, I don't know, write something, read some papers. <laughs> Take a day off. It's it, it's great. Um, Sit in your office drinking coffee, yeah. pretending you're doing all yeah. of the the above. red room, of course. <laughs> yeah, like. yeah, absolutely. The the big frustration though is um, supercomputers. You don't pay for time on any of these national infrastructures. They have queue systems. It's all very English and polite. Oh. So everyone gets an amount of time that they're allocated, and then it's literally a queue. So you line up in order, and your jobs go on, and. Um, so that in order to make sure that people don't just stick a job on for three months and screw everyone else out of using it, they have limit time limits on it. So they range from the National Supercomputer at Canberra, where jobs can only run for 24 hours, to the UQ one, where they can run for two weeks. And so then you have to string oh. your jobs together one mm. after the other. So you couldn't... So let me get this straight. So you have a supercomputer and you need to use it for three months because that's how much your simulation takes. Would you have to get out of the queue and jump back in again afterwards? Well, well you submit all the jobs at once, but yeah, each one goes in the queue and it's time. So it runs for 24 hours and then it puts the next one on the bottom of the queue and then that one makes its way out and then the ah. next one goes on. And this is a bit of a tradition that goes back to like the dawn of computing <laughs> no computing computing okay, uh, right. in, in, like you, you remember you, you, computers in universities did not used to be laptops and desktops sitting around they used to be entire rooms where you'd get your punch card stacks in order and you'd take them down to the machine and if you dropped them on the way then good luck to you you lost your spot in the queue and please come back whenever you've spent 17 hours putting that back in order secret life oh. of izzy he actually uh was one of his students <laughs> back yeah. in the day my mother oh it, it gets worse than that the the best story about punch cards was if you wanted to share code with international collaborations you'd send a box full of punch cards 
and it would come through to Australia, and then customs would inspect it. And most of the time they just rearranged it, and that was fine because you had a machine that would sort them. But occasionally they'd keep one for <gasps> purpose. And then you'd get there and you'd run this your program through the machine and it just wouldn't work. And you could not work out why. Because it was literally missing six lines of code that were on our punch card that oh. was sitting in Canberra. That is... See, I mean, it obviously hasn't changed, has it? There's, there's no... Like, there's some things that are always going to be the same. Like, customs officials being dicks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not destroying rare plant collections or anything that they've done recently, but, but it's still oh, bad. It's still not great. That's yeah. yeah, oh, so much, like, resources just wasted. That makes uh, me so mad. But it is kind of amazing to see how, like, we've moved from supercomput- from normal computers to supercomputers, and it still has a, has all these old infrastructure and logistics problems. Yeah. So wait, are you excited for quantum computers or are you just, you know, I mean, quantum generally is not a thing that oh, you're... Oh, no, no, uh... <laughs> no. I mean, quantum computers, in theory, can be super great and they'll solve a lot of problems. But, I mean, it already feels like we're in a golden age of computing for my stuff, right? I have... I mean, we still have to compete for time, but I, I do relatively small projects. There are people who simulate proteins and membranes who they could use all of the supercomputing power in Australia on their own and still want more. I have as much computer time as I could possibly want, and all that quantum computing would do if it became mainstream is mean that my jobs would go a little bit faster. So when it comes to running these computer simulations, if you have to, if you have to put a job in that's going to take three months, how do you know you've coded your simulation correctly? <laughs> well, that's the plus of using packages. But th- those ones were actually ones that I had written myself, and you test the heck out of it and hope. <laughs> and sometimes one of the things that happens in numerical simulation is computers can actually only remember numbers up to a certain size. They're not infinitely long. So uh, you start getting errors creeping in. Very you, small errors. You get rounding errors. You get rounding errors. And when you paralyze something, it gets even worse because you're splitting a job up on multiple processes and you've got round-off errors. So the order that things come back from the different processes actually starts to change the results because they add up in a different order, which means the rounding errors get slightly different. So you can run the same job twice on the computer with in parallel and get different results. How can we trust any results then? Well, I mean, they're all approximations. You make an argument that they're all relatively <laughs> close to the thing. And with, with the simulations I do, they're chaotic in the mathematical sense, which means that very small changes make huge trajectory differences. So you're not reproducing a real trajectory, you're just producing a trajectory that's probably physically okay. If you think too hard about it, it gets really hairy. <laughs> can you at least, so after 24 hours, once your job's been running, can you actually go back and check and say, oh, there's errors here, let's stop it? Yeah, you can do all of those things. And I mean, at the moment on these big supercomputer clusters, I would never run anything that's more than a few weeks of length. It's it's just, just asking for weeks. trouble. Just a few weeks. But I mean, that compared to some animal, I mean... You, you take an animal model that's 30 days or 60 days or something. I don't have to go in on the weekend. And... <laughs> you don't have to look after living things. Yeah. Um, yeah, some cancer models, especially um, glioblastoma, takes weeks to grow. Uh, Melanoma is easier. It like, just grows in two weeks. You're fine. Yeah, yeah I guess you, you, it kind of seems like a long time. But then you, you think about you know growing a cell or growing a, an Plants, animal man. or growing... Yeah, anything like that. And that takes like much longer than what it could be. And if you, you mess it up, you have to start again. Yeah. Same as a simulation. Yeah. Having said that, computers are great. Computers do what you tell them to do, not what you want them to do. Yeah, working with live <laughs> animals, it's more like, why is this not working? <laughs> How many factors are influencing yeah. this? Actually, I saw a really um, 
really interesting quote and it was like being a programmer is like being in a murder mystery where you're the detective but you're also the murderer (laughs) 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 your natural reaction here on zed digital and we've got our expert in the studio today dr james reed who is a research fellow at aibn and does lots of stuff with simulations and supercomputers and but really his first love is i've forgotten what it was Fluid dynamics, no. <laughs> sure. Whatever. Uh, Physics. Tiny fluid dynamics. Yes. Um, so what I wanted to ask you... missed the you, statistical part. <laughs> statistical fluid dynamics. Tiny statistical fluid dynamics. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> anyway, um, so what I wanted to ask you is what does this stuff mean for the real world? Does it mean anything? <sighs> now you're asking the question you should never ask scientists. So obviously all the stuff that I like to talk about getting paid for, the simulations, the practical stuff... Yeah. Um, that means a lot, right? So the project I've been most recently working on is there's an experimental group. They're making cyclic polymers, which is polymers in circle shapes as opposed to string shapes. And they want to know how this will affect the structure of plastics that you make out of it. Mm. So they can only make them in certain sizes, but they want to know generally how, if you stick two rings together, do they behave like strings do or do they behave differently so we're doing lots of simulations on that just to see how does it matter how many you stick next to each other does it matter if you put things on either end you know do they get bigger or smaller all those sorts of properties which hopefully down the line will lead to sort of structural innovations and so on so there's that sort of thing the the sort of theory side um basically there are two strands that i work on um so the bit i was talking about earlier where we do these predictions about behavior they're kind of like the no of physics. People keep going, oh, we'll build nano machines and they'll do this and that, and we're just going, no, no, they won't. They really won't. <laughs> so um, the people who deal with nanotechnology is like, no, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. Or it's not going to work like you hope it will work. It could work, but you need to, you know, you can't just take big things and make them smaller and think that they'll do what they do. Right? So Ant-Man isn't a thing? What do you- <sighs> oh, I know. <laughs> One day we will invent a shrink ray. He's so dreamy. <laughs> um, yeah, um, but there's also another branch to it, which it turns out these fluctuations can actually be used for something, and that's measuring free energies. Now, free energy is the most important concept in material science that normal people have not heard of, and it's got a really unfortunate name. So It's like entropy, but not. Exactly. <laughs> and it's got a really unfortunate name because the free in free energy is being used in the sense of available, not as in cheap. So um, I used to have a boss who did uh, statistical mechanics and he used to get crank letters because people are always sending you letters about their perpetual motion machines or their free energy devices. <laughs> and oh, You just wait. No, I don't, I don't please, know how to do this. So you grab, a, um, you grab a... One of those, what are those things called? The things that you put a bunch of electronic... This is not going to end well. No, I don't know <laughs> what you're talking gone. about. Continue. But yeah, yeah, you stick a thing and a thing together and then it turns and endless it thing gets faster and faster. See, yeah. The, yeah. the real perpetual mo- real perpetual energy machine is just the idea of people trying to find perpetual energy machines. They seem <laughs> to have they have unlimited time and effort to put into this thing, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. But what free energy really tells you is how stable something is. So the lower the free energy, the more stable a thing is. So all things being equal, something will go to the lowest energy state. So all of chemistry, all of chemistry can be reduced to making equivalent equations that have a negative free energy change. Because that means they happen on their own without you having to do anything to them. 
Okay. And material science, if you have two two different states of a material, it can range in two different ways. You want to know which one has lower free energy because that's the one you're going to get when you make it. And classically in physics, they do this really abstract problem where you have a piston and you move the piston infinitely slowly and you measure the free energy as the amount of work that you do by moving this piston so slowly that the system is always in equilibrium and it never heats up or anything and that's great but in the real world we just squash that damn piston and it heats up and it heats up a random amount depending on the configuration if you do that over and over again it will heat up a different amount each time because all the atoms will be arranged differently. And it turns out you can just measure the free energy by doing it over and over again and taking this kind of weighted average. Oh. And so that's really useful because then you can measure things in the real world as opposed to using these very abstract ways of doing it. You don't need to do it infinitely slowly. Infinitely slowly, yes. Well, yeah, you've got an actual measurement. Well, yeah. you, you've got some yeah. sort of real world yeah. measurement to peg it to. Yeah. Not that we couldn't measure free energy in other ways, but it gives an extra tool in the toolkit right mm. so so that's things but i mean it's it's always going to be the problem in particularly australian science there's not a lot of money australia's not a big country you have to pick winners and losers and fundamental science is always a hard ask because a lot of the time you don't if it's good fundamental science you don't know what the outcome is going to be until you do it sorry i, I was listening to the malcolm turnbull speech the other day and i heard this country's not in the business of picking winners and losers so uh <laughs> <laughs> is that really what he said no it's what they always say it's yeah. what every single person on like vaguely cutting budgets say like we're not in the business of picking winners and losers when that is literally basically all the government does <laughs> well, that's well, so true <laughs> yeah um, particularly when there are, there are two funding bodies whose entire job is picking yeah. winners. And no, but that's what I'm saying. Like, that's fine. Like, I understand we've got to distribute scarce resources. Don't just lie to us about it, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to ask. Yeah, everyone's looking at yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I was just waving at the guy outside. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we're all G. Oh, oh. oh actually, um, time crystals. <laughs> oh. What are your thoughts? Time crystals? <laughs> yeah. Um, can't they be used for perpetual motion, oh. or they thought to be used for perpetual motion? Have I, we just dumped? Have we dumped into like pseudoscience? I don't know how this works. Like, yeah. I don't know what a time crystal is. What's a time crystal? <laughs> Tell me more about a time crystal. <laughs> I was just, you know, perusing through the Wikipedia page on perpetual motion, and it says in 2017, new states of matter, time crystals, were discovered, in which, on a microscopic scale, the component atoms are in continual repetitive motion thus satisfying the literal definition of perpetual motion. Oh. And basically, um, these machines in the traditional sense or violate thermodynamic laws because they are in their quantum ground state. Yeah, so what that, what that means is, and you've, you've probably discussed this with quantum people before, they, they do weird stuff, but one of the weird <laughs> things about quantum is you can't actually have zero energy. Everything has a tiny bit of energy, one quanta of energy, and that the, the size of the quanta depends on the system and its vibrational modes but you can't make something stop moving entirely it always has just a little bit of energy so yes everything kind of has a perpetual motion but you can't do work with it that's the what when we talk about a perpetual motion machine what we actually mean is something that lets you do usable work if it can't clean your laundry indefinitely it's not a perpetual motion machine <laughs> so essentially everything has like a little shiver but it's not going to work yeah exactly um so I was going to move into kind of about you a little bit. Um, and so I wanted to ask what your day-to-day -day life was like in a lab. In a lab? In, no, a, in an no. office? In an office. Like, 
um, apart from the theory work, my job looks indistinguishable from drone office worker. An right? accountant. <laughs> accountant, yeah. I get in, I have a cup of tea, I sit down at a, by science standards, spacious desk with a pile <laughs> of books on it. I sit down at my computer, I check my email, and then what I actually do is log on to the different supercomputers to check how my jobs are going, because usually I've been running them overnight or over the weekend. And and then you uh, go home because the supercomputers are still running, right? Yeah, yeah, that that's totally what I want to do. Yeah. And that's actually a bit of a pain because that's still done old school, 80s hacker style, command line, oh, really? typing stuff in. Yeah. Um, so that looks still super primitive. Uh, how, so at like 9am in the morning, you're like going in, looking like a hacker, like going in the, oh, totally. the back I do, end of supercomputers. Yeah, and I do that for like 10 minutes. And <laughs> if I've got results, I'll go through and analyze them. And otherwise, you know, that's the usual... Science, esoterica, coffee, reading papers, reading and review papers. Um, I'm kind of the fix-it postdoc at the moment, so I've been dealing with students with getting programs to work because we use these off-the-shelf packages, so teaching them how to work with them, you know, helping them get them working because, you know, they'll do what you tell them to do, not what you want them to do. Oh, you mean the... Oh, I the, thought you meant the postdocs. No, 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 not the postdocs. <laughs> students, students. Though, so I, you know, it's... Uh, postdocs help each other out, right? Science is a big sort of helpful community. It's a big family. Exactly. And so it's a bit sad then that the you kind of were saying off air that it's coming. You you're not that keen anymore. Oh, it's not that I'm not keen. It's that the people room. aren't keen to pay me anymore. There's there's <laughs> kind of a difference. I oh, mean, yeah, you of know, course. the reality um, of it. Yeah, it's it's not a very big field, and money is tight. And you know, I've already had a couple of bouts of unemployment in science, and. My current contract is up at the end of June. My boss is unlikely to get any money to renew it. So I have to find another job relatively shortly. And I have young kids, so I don't really want to move around. If I wanted a postdoc somewhere else, that's not hard. But having to move every one to two years for a new job with kids is a bit of a strain. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, you know, maybe a miracle has happened. It's happened before, and I'll find something in Brisbane or locally in Australia. But otherwise, I'll probably be out of science at the end of the year. So, if you're looking for someone to uh, do some simulation work for you, plays with supercomputers, uh, we've got a man here. That, ruggedly uh, handsome. You're right. You're ruggedly <laughs> ruggedly handsome. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Like yeah. the Indiana Jones of statistical uh, fluid dynamics. So, please <laughs> do not look at my AIBN picture that was taken at a press event. And I only looked at it the other day when I sent it in for the show. Oh, God. <laughs> you do look younger in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually haven't seen this picture, and now I really want to. <laughs> we'll, we'll bring it up It afterwards. looks fine. It's not that bad. Everyone looks bad in photos. Yeah, I don't like my AIBN picture, but I don't think anybody does. Oh, you've got an AIBN picture? I'm yeah. going to look at that To be fair, it's a process the way they did it. They decided everyone needs pictures, so they offered coffee vouchers, which is the way you get <laughs> academics to do anything. <laughs> and you had to literally come down that day and get your photo done. So people just rocked up how they looked. So, you know, I've got five days stubble and a random shirt on. It's yeah. just like... Why would you... Did you not know that it was... Did they offer free it, coffee voucher? It was no, 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 a free you coffee don't voucher. You, you don't understand. It's like... Because like, it's free coffee voucher. Often there'll be free biscuits or something. No, just free coffee. Yeah. Oh, well, that's... That, but, that's like... Get the students. Okay, look. I'm just... I'm confused because, like, they must have said in the email, no, no. like, free coffee voucher for photo. No, but you don't understand. They don't... People don't remember <laughs> about what they're doing until, like, they get there on the day and they're like, oh, there's coffee and I need it and I I'm running very low and parking was expensive today. So you go to the thing yeah, and the, you get your coffee voucher in your 
little hands. <laughs> it's funny. I went down for that day to get a photo and get the coffee voucher. And then I saw the old original photo that I got taken when I first joined AIBN. And I'm like, oh, can you just use that one? It's a bit better than the one you just took. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I ended up just staying with my old photo. And the great thing is they they virtually never upgrade photos. So I remember when I first came to Brisbane, I was working at Griffith, and my boss had clearly got her photo taken the day she started, which was 15 <laughs> years earlier. And so she, she looked so young. She, like, <laughs> she wasn't going to change that photo for anything, right? No, like, no, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, academic, this is this is what you get on Natural Reaction. Yeah. You get the uh, the real, true life of academics. Yeah, a real glimpse into life. But yeah. it's like, and it's 80% coffee. No, yeah, but it's like, you know, when the UQ has its ele- student elections and they go like, vote and you get a $5 voucher to the student to the shops. Like, yeah, that's what you need to offer people. Otherwise, you're not going to get anyone showing up. I refuse up. <laughs> to vote for any of those um, elections. You purely you don't like young liberal or young, young labor? Well, no. <laughs> but the $5 I, voucher, no. <laughs> see... This is the thing I disagree with. You should not have to give people an incentive to vote. I don't agree with that. And you shouldn't have to give people an incentive to do a lot of things. But, I mean, like you shouldn't have to give people an incentive to follow the road rules. Living should be enough. But we all need it. <laughs> wow. Um, so you've travelled around quite a bit in your um, science life. So you've yep. been to the University of Calgary. We talked a little bit about you um, off air about being in Canberra as well. Um, so where have you... Obviously, that's a really cool thing about science. Um, have you enjoyed going to all these different places? What's yeah. your favourite thing about travelling? Oh, I mean, it's it, and it's not just travelling. There's a difference between visiting somewhere and living there and working there, and that's the really great thing. And then within a university, it's a melting pot, right? So I went to Calgary and... Nobody in the group was from Calgary, right? I mean, we had a couple of Canadians and a couple of Americans, and my boss was German, and that was lovely. And, you know, I'm from New Zealand originally. I did my undergrad in Wellington, and then I did a PhD here. And so, you know, you get to meet lots and lots of people. You get to travel to lots of places, and you get to live there. That's the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so so Calgary, you were talking about off air. Like, I don't know. I thought this was really cool that it is kind of in a mountain and you're, you know, you're getting to negative 40 degrees and it's just such a different environment to what this would be. Yeah, it's totally different from Brisbane. So you get a 70 degree temperature range roughly, minus 40 to plus 30. And because it's at high altitude, they get something called the Chinook, which is the snow eating winds. And so it can snow any time of year because you're in the mountains, though it can get up to 30 degrees. But the snow doesn't melt. The snow sublimes under the the wind, so it can be completely covered in about an inch of snow, and then you'll go inside and you'll work, and everywhere's insulated, and you don't really look outside, and then you walk out, and the snow is gone. It's not puddles, it's not ice, it's gone. That's crazy. Yeah. For people at home, when something sublimates, it moves from solid to gas, or uh, instant, like it doesn't, it skips a liquid phase, essentially. Uh, Carbon dioxide, solid does this, dry ice, when it goes from the ice to the, the lovely fog effect just goes from solid to gas. That's why you get uh, delicious cocktails with uh, dry ice in them. Yeah. And they're also fun to put into little tubes, like put a little bit of dry ice into a tube, close it shut, and it explodes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nadia's been exploding things since she was 10. <laughs> what you do is you just sneakily like take a little teeny piece of dry ice, put it in a little Eppendorf tube, teeny bit of water in it, close it and quickly put it in somebody else's lab coat. <laughs> nice. You're a terrible person. I make fun around the lab. That would that would shock me. That would, that would I would be I would be surprised to say the least. 
So people at home must now, right now, must be thinking that science sounds like a really good way to go and be depressed in very interesting places around the world. <laughs> I, I, w- I was definitely not depressed in Canada. Well, I, generally not depressed. <laughs> generally uh, not depressed. I mean, it was another one of these jobs where I got a 12-month contract with the, oh, you can apply for a grant while you're doing your job, and if it gets up, you can stay. So basically, most of science runs on a, as long as we don't actually have to pay you, you can keep working for us. Kind How of model? would you change it? Um, that's the problem. I mean, this is why nobody wants to change it, right? University has been around for a thousand years. Like the universe, I had a friend. This who, model hasn't, though. Yeah, this model hasn't, and they're complicated things, right? I mean, they're populated by people who think it's an educational institute. It's staffed by people who think it's a research institution. It's run by people who think it's a business. It's it's <laughs> always a little bit of a weird place. I've never been able to pop properly articulate that, and I'm going to thank you <laughs> for giving me the words that I've always known I've needed but never had. Yeah. He's going to be using that all day now. He's going to be like, guys, guys, listen to this. <laughs> it, it, they're, they're just weird. And going back to the, we have to pick winners and losers. And Australia, sensibly, has gone all in on medical science. Australia is, is a world leader in medical science. I don't do medical science. It screwed me pretty badly. But I actually think it was probably the right thing to do. They had to pick something. And if you're going to specialise in it, Australia already had a long and glorious history. IVF, heart transplants, things like that. I don't know if we... Gardasil. I don't know if that is like necessarily a, that might be a bit of a false choice. Like I don't think you have to specialize so hard if we were willing to devote funding in different ways. I mean, we're the country that invented Wi-Fi. Uh, that's no that's no small thing. Uh, uh, I mean, and, and CSIRO we, will definitely. Oh, yeah. I can't. I can't. We, and we, we were worried for a while there. It looked like some guys from CSIRO might win a Nobel Prize just after being fired by CSIRO, <laughs> and that would have been really embarrassing. Fortunately, Ooh. they didn't win the Nobel Prize. So oh, everyone yeah. was quite happy about I, that in the end. I love that, that that's one of the problems that we've had. It's just like, oh, my God, we've just fired these people that might win a Nobel Prize. How are we going to get out of this? <laughs> like We're like the only country who's tried to delist a, a natural wonder from the UNESCO World Heritage List. Like... Because we, we tried to get, we tried to delist the reef. Uh, Why am I why not would surprised? You do that? Because there was some research coming out about how it was being damaged, and we need, weren't doing enough. And the, well, the yes. this the Abbott government was in charge at the time, and of their course. and their response was, "Well, let's delist it." <laughs> rather than stop doing bad things to it. That is some smart, like, they're like, you know what, I've got a plan, guys. <laughs> it's advanced, oh, I was going to swear, <laughs> terribleness. It's advanced terribleness. It's kind of terribleness you need to go to university to understand. <laughs> I don't know if I should play a song or we should keep like, doing whatever we've got going on right now. <laughs> oh, we can move on to, uh, we've, got lots of, we've got lots of things we could talk about. <laughs> lots of problems with the uh, the current model. Yep. Okay, I might, I might, mm. unless we've got anything last we want to say. Is there anything else you want to add to, for any young scientists that are going to start or any uh, PhD students who are doing so, their confirmation? So the, the big thing is you can't talk someone out of doing a PhD. You, no. can't, you can tell them the job market is terrible, everything else. People do science because they love it. I love science. I'm passionate about science. And even looking back on it, I probably still would have made most of the same choices. Because uh, I love it. I mean, that's pretty. That's a. I mean, if that's not going to take someone into science, I feel like. Yeah, I feel. Will. I feel like if you could somehow come through your honors and masters and still want to do a PhD, there's not a lot that's going to bash that out of you. <laughs> there's nothing that'll stop you. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. back to the meth head thing, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. No, everyone warns you, don't do it, don't do it, and then it's like, nope, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm stubborn. <laughs> and then six months in, you're like, oh, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I listen? <laughs> and the only hope is that. By three years in, you're like, okay, well, it wasn't, it was okay. I made it. <laughs> I made it. And let's start it all again, shall and we? And then you warn other people to not do it. 
<laughs> You're a natural reaction here on Zed Digital, and we're here talking about. We forgot to check what we were going to do in the break. I might do my little AI story, actually. Not going to talk about Apex Predators yet? Oh, actually, no, 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 Izzy. Okay, yeah. You, oh, you talk, talk about, about Apex Predators. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about Apex Predators. Tell me Jump about the it. otters. About the otters, <laughs> yes. Well, they're utterly fantastic. Oh, um, no. All right, uh, I'm turning you off. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Back to AI. <laughs> no, no uh, it's just in an interesting new study that's been published in Current Biology, telling you that it's both current and about biology. No, it's cell press. Uh, it seems that in a few different regions that are outside what we would consider their traditional or even... Uh, viable sort of environmental zones we're seeing apex predators outside them so like I'll give you an example to make this make a bit more sense uh crocodiles are being found more in marine environments than previously thought that would like they we just thought they didn't have the salt tolerance to be in these these aquatic marine environments for that long but, but that makes sense though right like this is exactly what you would imagine if you mess with someone's um like ecosystem and then they will basically evolve into see this is a actually new area. this is actually where this study gets really interesting it because uh, you sort of intuitively feel like we're forcing them out of their habitats and that climate change is pushing them out and that kind of thing yeah but looking at uh, some historical records in the fossil records it looks like this is not animals running to these new places because they're being forced out of their habitat, they are reclaiming areas that they had once occupied that humans had pushed them out of. So they're reversing mm. back. Yes, yeah, so this is actually a good thing. Maybe it looks like it. Lo- okay, again, they, they're the there's not enough evidence to dismiss completely the hypothesis that they're being forced out uh, by climate change or human habitation, depending on the re- and like or a whole bunch of other various factors, depending on you know the exact region we're talking about, of course. But when you look, because they, they went through, especially the, one of the compelling bits of evidence is like looking through the fossil record and you'll find that, oh no, these animals have been here a long, long time ago. In fact, they've been here since when humans were not here. And it is, it seems like they used to occupy these zones, but when humans came to occupy the, uh, the same space and they, they would hunt them out of these regions. Um, part of this sort of interesting look at, study of this though because a lot of this is focused around marine environments because we've been much better at producing like marine parks or protected spaces where we don't go okay no people go here no people hunt here no people do that this that and the other and that has allowed these bigger predators like crocodiles and exploring marine zones again and sea otters uh seals entering in salt marshes is also one apparently uh they've re-infiltrated these zones and the food web is shifting around them because uh, this is something that we've only really just begin to understand is how our impact on the food web actually has a incredible impact on th- not only the ecosystem but the geography of a place over a big amounts of time. Uh, for instance, wo- uh, apex predators like wolves play a key role in maintaining riverways hmm. uh, be- so. because they hunt back uh, the a lot of browsing grazing animals that would normally destroy riverbanks and prevent trees from growing and uh, preventing the erosion of the riverbanks so like over a big over many many decades the lack of wolf pressure because we kill them quite often we used to we used to you know go deliberately out of our way to kill 
those kinds of animals for various reasons, to protect our crops, to protect our livestock, to protect human settlements, for instance. Uh, killing them back has me- has given this sort of decades of time without this part of the ecosystem that is very, very important to it, as it turns out. Uh, a really interesting one is uh, How Wolves Make Waterways. It's a great documentary about Yellowstone National Park in the States because uh, it was a concerted effort to poison the wolf population there and they've only just started to come back it's actually one of the few conservation biology uh success stories is the recovery recovery (laughs) of the gray wolves i like how it's oh no the wolves are becoming a problem let's kill them oh damn we made a worse back (laughs) yeah we made a worse problem but this is also why dingoes are important in australia is that they defend waterholes that uh would normal that would normally be eventually destroyed by our grazing habits uh, just because they protect, they push them back. They allow plant life to develop around it and entrench those ecosystems. Because otherwise, if you have nothing scaring you from the water source, these big mammals will crowd around them and stay around them for a big periods of time, digging them up, giving them no time for the vegetation to recover around them, and giving no time for the actual like riverbanks to recover. So they're seeing like a whole. So there's a couple of different really interesting implications from this study that's found a resurgence of. Uh, these other predators in environments that are protected. This is the big. This is another key thing that it is these increases in population for these predators are happening in protected environments. So one of the good thing is showing that our policy of making these protected zones, protected regions, works to some extent. We're seeing the recovery. Uh, the other key implication is with the the habitats that are acceptable to these animals these organisms seems broader than we ever thought it was previously because we kind of thought they were more limited by climate or environment so it depends so climate and salt tolerance is a big one for marine environments obviously uh but they're not as limited as we thought so there might be more places that some of these stressed populations can escape to as climate change worsens hmm. uh so we it might be as long as humans still aren't there. Yeah, as long as we, you know, but we have to, we have to maintain, like, we have to be careful about how we, you know, manage the land and the and the land and the water resources and environments around us because clearly they have an impact. It has an impact. Well, having a protected place obviously has a big impact, but what about areas that aren't protected? Well, they have not seen these same increases. Uh, they, they, for model organisms, they looked at, uh, I believe, they were crocodiles slash alligators. Alligator, pop- alligator population is a good one because they've really seen a, a resurgence in some parts of the states. Uh, yeah, actually, there's a bunch more videos now of all the uh, Florida crocodiles that are just walking around. Yeah. and oh, then Alligators, obviously. Sorry. Al- yeah, yes, because... Crocodile, crocodiles, eh, good old Australia. We're used to crocodiles. We don't get on. We don't get alligators. They get alligators over there. <laughs> we don't get crocodiles. Yes. Thank goodness you don't get like Australian alligator hybrids that have really <laughs> long legs, but are still like the size of those massive crocodiles. Though <laughs> yeah. so to be fair, the crocodiles are limited by temperature. So all of what you're saying means that soon we might get crocodiles in Brisbane. Yeah. Oh. But this is but this is the other thing that I wanted to draw up because like while this is a nice sort of positive story about how like we're seeing these move into protected zones. There are some environments where we're seeing, especially in the marine environment space, and in the northern hemisphere, animals that live further south are spreading further north. And in the southern hemisphere, animals that live further north are spreading further south because the temperature is shifting. Yeah, I saw something similar with that um, about like coral populations in um, Sydney. Oh, there's a, there's a really interesting one about um, these lower order 
sea creature that feeds on uh, on uh, seagrass, I believe. I, I'd have to look up the specific one, but the northern hemisphere, the very far north polar region variant of this sort of sea grazing type, tiny, tiny crustacean, I think. Okay. Uh, they produce lots of fat and they become this incredibly energy dense uh, food source for a huge variety of northern fish species. And because you're in the far north, you really need to have a calorie dense meals. Cold, yeah. coldness just means that like that's why if you ever heard about Arctic explorers they eat a lot of fat that's why Inuit that's why like Inuit cultures in the Arctic Circle eat a lot of blubber you need that that calorie but as the as the southern species infiltrate north they're competing over the same food resources but they're not necessarily designed as well to carry that energy up the food chain oh. so like we're sort of worried like well because like, the food webs, the, the food webs in these areas that are getting these apex predators coming back in are shifting, and they seem to be sort of moving back to these older, maybe more, I don't know, naturally occurring sort of equilibrium that we haven't seen for a long, long time. But in other areas where these maybe not, these maybe aren't old species reclaiming territory they once inhabited. They're simply moving into new territory because it's cooler. Yeah, or because because or it's cool because the environmental conditions have changed. We don't necessarily know what that kind of effect might have. No, okay. I know this is like looking at the weirdest silver lining of all of the climate change things, but mm. it actually is kind of interesting that. So we we need to do what we need to be able to do to be able to stop climate change because we're going to be the ones that suffer. You know, humans do not have the ability. They they will have the ability to do it, but people will. There will be people displaced. You know, our quality of life will go down. There will be a whole bunch of issues that will happen with climate change. But I feel like it's kind of interesting to see in real time what these animals do well, these because ecosystems these do. ecosystems go okay well this is changing we're gonna have to work this out it's gonna be a, you know these battles happen you work out who gets on top you end up with completely different ecosystems and it's completely different stuff and there will be animals that die there'll be new animals that rise up like they will be okay but it's it's not what it should be obviously but it's interesting to yeah. see like these these things have, have happened before not to this extent but it's just, it's crazy. Well, it's an interesting way of sort of conceptualizing it where it's more about like, oh, what is this going to do to a species? And what is this going to do to an entire sort of interlinked ecosystem? Because uh, even the reemergence of these predators. It's going to drive adaptation in one way or the, another. Whatever happens on this planet, whether it is a global disaster, um, whatever happens, animals will adapt and survive and they will make the best of their environments. There are going to be species that die out, but in that there will be new species that emerge. And that's just how it is. There's no plan to evolution. There's no plan to what's going to happen. But things adapt and make the best of a bad situation. Or in saying that, it's not even a bad situation to them. It's just a new and novel environment. Yeah. Well, that's right. Evolution doesn't really care about good or bad. It just is. Yeah. Um, but one thing I want to talk about really briefly about is how these predators can affect... Because we talked about how wolves, for instance, can shape waterways just by how they graze. But the other thing that happens is... And this is the same, the wolves uh, sort of work through the similar ways that you change the distribution of organisms from like the, the trophic levels. So like when you think about, okay, you've got, your, you've got your, your first order producers, your plants and your photosynthetics that are making energy, oh, sorry, capturing energy from light. And then you have the herbivores that feed off those and then the things that feed off those herbivores. And then you have like the apex predators that go through a lot of these things. Uh, reintroducing those top predators shifts 
the numbers of that system a bit. Because, uh, for instance, you can easily see how without the top of that pyramid, the, the, middle order, the middle order consumers can get out of hand and put too much stress on the base order producers. Yeah. And so like, that actually does happen because some people sort of like intuitively think, oh, well, if you take the thing that kills these things out, then the whole ecosystem should be healthier. No. But yeah, but what you might just do is cause, um, it's like one of the reasons rabbits are so terrible in Australia is that nothing that nothing eats them. So they go out of proportion, they go into plague proportion and they can eat themselves out of their own food supply, meaning that they will also suffer in the end. They starve and die. Horses also do this in this country quite a lot. Uh, so they manage to exhaust the producer supply because there's no nothing above them to make sure their population stays at a sustainable rate. I feel like that's a a basic lesson in terms of population size and number. If the population gets too big, eventually it's all going to suffer. And regardless of whatever animal that is, but it's also Has anyone it's, seen uh, Avengers like, Infinity War? <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Uh, in in happier news, I guess they chucked um, a crocodile in an MRI machine and played classical music to understand its brain better. Oh, that's cool. If you want to get on a more happy topic about crocodiles, <laughs> did it chill out? I probably should put a put a song on. But tell me, have you got a have you got a quick thing? Uh, basically, they found that the processing patterns resembled that of mammals and birds. But it's pretty cool because oh. they had to go overcome like some technical challenges of getting a crocodile in an MRI. Yeah, that would be interesting. But yeah. How would they even know what they're seeing? It's like a crocodile's brain. Like, it's going to be so different to, like... Well, it's just the processing patterns um, and functional MRI, and they can just... They can compare it and see things popping up and how things get processed. Technology. I know. What a, mm. what a time to be alive. Science is cool. Hold on, fantasy football. I'm putting up uh, fantasy music. Does that work? No? No one? If it works for you. Yeah. Fantasy band management? Yeah. I'm a, I mean, that's a weird fantasy I'd, thing, though, isn't although it? Although, I, I do think, now that you've said that, anyone who's ever been into, like, a genre, a, a witnessed a genre slap fight between, like, real niche subgenre people, like, they get in, you have, like, different areas of metal arguing about, oh, no, you're not You're that not real metal, metal. Yeah. yeah. I think, like, if you had, like... Gatekeepers are weird, yeah, hey? Yeah. I think if you had <laughs> fantasy band management, there's, like, a whole... You could you could get them you Community. could bring everyone together. Oh, like no, you probably just make them super competitive with each other. But it'd oh, be yeah. it'd be fascinating. <laughs> it would be fascinating. So what we're gonna do is I'm actually gonna. So this is really cool. This is a, a news story that came out on the ninth um, about the so the Google conference, um, it's the Google I/O developers conference in Mountain View. Um, and what they did was really like. It, it blew a lot of people's minds. It scared a lot of other people. In, but my, in my head, this whole conference takes place in like a castle in Transylvania. Oh, actually. <laughs> so I saw something and apparently ugh, there's like these nine people um, bikes and Google will actually use them as like a meeting. So they'll just all be on these bikes riding around. I was going to say, if I was working for Google, I'd just be like, no. All right. <laughs> we are... I am a human being and I'm deserving of rights and I refuse to do this cult-like activity. I, mean, I guess you don't have to, like, cycle on it. Like, there's eight other people. They've probably got it going. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So um, so they're at this um, thing. They're at this conference and what they bring up is this machine and they the Google AI assistant actually calls a person in a hair salon to book an appointment. And this is cool because it's not some shitty voice that you hear that you go that sounds like a robot it did not sound like a robot at all and as you can hear i'm going to play it and hopefully it works but you can actually hear the ai using the word um okay this is this is so cool let's see if it works 
And it's playing, maybe. Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. So that wasn't the whole thing, unfortunately. That's only the end bit. But I don't know. I that just, was pretty real, yeah. It sounds crazy. Like the two of them are just having a conversation. Yeah, the thing with that, um, if you listen to the entire recording, um, the AI actually, when the woman says, like, I'll just check for you. So initially AI asked for like an appointment at 12 o'clock. Yeah. And the woman's like, oh, let me check for you. And AI responds with, mm-hmm, which is brilliant yeah and then when a woman's like oh we don't have an appointment for that she's able to reschedule yeah so i think that's incredible in terms of the the way it can actually be like okay well we can't go with this path we'll go down this path and ask these options but the the smoothness of it all is probably the biggest part of this artificial intelligence is how seamless it seems to it be. it was beautiful oh. and this is okay there's there's obviously questions right this brings up like a lot of questions. The first one being, is this a good thing? Uh, look, that all depends on us as people. You reckon? Yeah, definitely. Because it'd be great if we had, if everyone gets access, if everyone has access to all the, the wonders of the world. Because uh, to quote somebody who I can't remember, I apologize. Uh, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. William Gibson. Thank you very much. Oh, look at you. We need to bring you in every week. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel really... Ash- all my, my friends who are really into sci-fi right now are so embarrassed at me. Like, oh, I can't <laughs> believe you didn't remember that. But because um, like, basically what I'm scared of, and I'm going to like put my tinfoil hat on the table here for this, is that... Put it on. It's not going to work if it's on the table. They're basically... <laughs> I mean, like laying your cards on the table kind of thing. Yeah, okay. It, you basically can like reinvent an aristocracy of people who own the means they literally own the means of production because it's all automated and no one can possibly compete with it and like everything comes from that because like, you can just sort of imagine the mega wealthy using this ai and and all the uberized apps for everything going oh i'll sort my tailor and my blacksmith and my they <laughs> and like they've, ba- they've basically moted themselves away in the equivalent of a, a modern day estate yeah, and I, Hamlet, like, okay, so obviously it's great for consumers. It's great for, I would love to be able to not call the pizza guy and get pizza or not call the hairdresser and make an appointment or a doctor or whatever. That's awesome for me, but I totally understand and I can see how this could be used. I mean, the fact that it is so, um, it, it's so like lifelike and we already get, you know, you already call a, a call center and they go... So can you please say the word one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> say I think one. it's going to be like, this could potentially be used for telemarketing. Yeah, definitely. Oh, no, it definitely is. Now, the, the first time you're going to, where most of us are going to be exposed to this. I'm gonna, Advertising. I'm going to say it's politicians getting the call, the robo calls out. Oh, yeah. Where it's going to be like, hi, I just want to talk to you about so-and-so's election campaign. What really matters to you? Blah, 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 blah. I think a lot of that's going to come here. Uh, I think, again, there's a lot of great possibility for like... Uh, like call centers for things like Centrelink and Veterans Affairs, all those sorts of things. Obviously, there's a huge potential. A, a caller that never gets impatient and never gets emotional about, you know, trying to help someone. That That is an incredible thing that we could have and a real use to society. Do I think 
the capital incentive is there, and that is apparently the only thing that matters in <laughs> the world. This is a sad episode. Uh, no, I don't, and I think it's probably only going to be incentivized to make people more miserable in the meantime. But uh, there is seriously good possibilities. There's and good I'm, possibilities, I'm, I'm but also like a lot of potential negatives. Yeah. Like if AI can eventually decide what mischief it wants to. Okay, um, so I'll let me put it this way. If Google becomes union controlled, I'll be happy. <laughs> so James, have you got any thoughts? Yeah, um, the most interesting bit's actually going to be the intermediate, the teething troubles. A lot of these AI systems are really dependent on how you train them. Mm. And they've had a lot of problems with these expert systems where they're built by white guys in Silicon Valley. Yep. And they deal really well with white guys, less well with white women and dark peop- um, males. Yeah. And then as soon as you have women who are not white, they just fall apart. So the easiest thing you can do in AI is take a picture of someone and guess their age. You you train these programs up, they're like 95% accurate for white males, and they're ah. like 30% less accurate for people yeah. of colour. Actually, there's a... Okay, um, I'm, you know, sign, and this show is finishing, right? Um, if you want to listen to a really cool podcast that's not us, um, I would actually totally recommend Note to Self. It's a US podcast about technology and the way it relates to life. Um, and they did a really cool podcast about, like, how these Silicon um, Valley bros, great term, I love it, um, are not able to see what the problems that they create are. And, yeah, it, it was a very interesting podcast. I would totally recommend it. It's awesome. I would, yeah, sorry, Nan, you were going to say something? I was just going to say blinded by, by their privilege. Yeah, well... Oh, yeah, they just don't yeah, realise. They like, can't yeah. see it. This is something that is actually not new. Uh, if you look at health products, for instance, there is so much that are designed for specific people. The beauty industry, for instance, mm-hmm. very much is designed around a very specific idea of beauty and like does not work for lots of people. The fact of the matter is, like, yeah, if you let this only up to money, only, it will only benefit people who have money. Yeah. yeah. But just think of that liberal Nats robocall that suddenly oh. starts cursing someone oh. out because they're a doll blood <laughs> throwing <laughs> racial epithets because it's just been trained on the wrong data set, yeah, right? Oh, my exactly. goodness. That would uh, be something, It's also, it? like, hand, like, sensor washes and stuff like that also have t- trouble with people's skin color and all this kind of thing. Like, it is, these are problems. Um, we're gonna have to pack up really soon. We're we're getting we're getting through. So I just wanted to quickly say what we've been doing today. Um, so Izzy, you've been speaking about apex predators, mm, and uh, they're reclaiming areas that they once existed in. And Nadia Viagra, yes, and well, more of like the redo project, repurposing <laughs> drugs for oncology, and Viagra being one that is used for this purpose. It'll be interesting to see what actually comes out of that, and. Oh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, these drugs are already on the market. They've proven to be safe and efficient. If it's taking this long to find plausible, affordable cancer therapeutics, then let's definitely try use what we have. Similarly to evolution, it uses what it has. Yeah, let's try use that purpose. And Dr. James Reed, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciated having you. Thanks for having me too. It's not as bad as it sounds, people. <laughs> what the show? <laughs> no. the experience or science? Science, oh. Acad- academia <laughs> in general. Yeah, actually, it's probably a good way to end off. So, um, we're all scientists in some capacity. We've all done our undergrad degrees. Some of us are doing our po- like we're doing you know further education, and we are a big um, component for science. We really do like science. It's why we're yeah. here every week. We yeah. want to tell you about what's happening and we want to tell you what science is like. And it's not to say that science is always amazing because it's just not. That's not how any job works. But 
as we've been talking about, like science is one of those things that you want to do and people really just keep wanting to do it. And if there's funding for it, there'll be scientists. And I think as long as there's people, there will be science. Yeah. Just definitely. because there's there's something amazing in that endeavor of learning more and discovering more. Yeah, and I do also really quickly want to say, like, yeah, we joke about the misery and all that sort of stuff, but I think it's because like, part of the mission of the show has always been to show, like, science and scientists as they are, not as they sort of appear to be in media. Not in a three-second clip. Yeah, so, yeah, it's fun. Like, we This is what they look like. We do make jokes about depression and how <laughs> much... how work is being miserable recently all the time <laughs> your natural reaction sorry i yeah. just like botched your outro i just this is what i have to work with guys <laughs> <laughs> your natural reaction thanks everybody so much for listening and we hope you have a great day see Bye, you next everybody. time <laughs>